Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Anjali Paul. Anjali is of Indian origin. She was born in Punjab, India, and after having lived in several other countries, grew up in England from the age of nine. She's an author and founder of the Live and Learn Foundation. She gives 25% of all royalties from her Live and Learn English grammar textbook to the Live and Learn Foundation and we have included a link in the podcast notes. Before we begin, I just wanted to give you a heads up that some very strong and sensitive topics discussed in today's podcast. So welcome, Anjali. It's really lovely to speak with you today. I'm very excited to talk to you about your life and your journey and your secret resume. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Melody, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this. You're very welcome. You've got a really interesting story. Uh, we've spoken before uh, the podcast recording today about how uh, about your story and about some of the interesting things that you've done and that you are doing now. So um, shall we dive straight in and talk about some of the uh, important uh, things that have happened, important parts of your life? Um, and let's start with, uh, I mean, a significant thing, really. Um, which was something that happened to you in your early 20s, uh, where you were involved in a fire on a train. Is that right? That's right. Yes, it is. Mm. It is. Should I... say a little bit about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> not sure what to say, really. Uh, it was an accident, but uh, as, as you know, I'm sure, um, there are no accidents. Uh, I found that out later on in my spiritual journey. I've written about that before. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it was it was an accident at the time for me. Um, it was something that um, really uh, changed the course of my life, I think. Uh, I was very lucky to survive. Uh, the doctors thought I wouldn't, and my body was full of alcohol at the time. So um, they couldn't give me any anaesthetic. I just remember for 24 hours I was lying in the hospital and um, it was, I was, uh, I mean, it was just, I can't even describe it. Um, I went into a kind of, um, dream state I suppose I didn't lose consciousness though mm. uh, even when I was on fire and on the train I didn't lose consciousness and at that point I was very lucky it was the last train to where I was living um, in uh, at the time uh, I was doing a, a film course in Croydon College I was 24 it was the last week of the course mm -hmm. and um Usually I was on my own on that train. It was very late at night. Uh, but that night there was someone else on that train and he saved my life. So I was I was uh, unbelievably lucky. But and, and at the time, I think I told you before, I also knew, uh, I just knew I wasn't going to die. Wow. I still have no idea why I didn't die. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I am still alive, but I, I I just knew I wasn't going to die. So when I was in hospital and the surgeons were going, well, you know, I knew I wasn't going to die. And it did take a while for me to get out of hospital because they had to do skin grafts, which at that time were still kind of experimental. The grafts went calloid. So my whole body is basically covered in these scars. They're still there today. Um, and at that time, it was, I, I just switched off. 
emotionally, I think. I mean, I wasn't able really to talk about it. As I've also told you before, it was a very different time. People were mm. a lot less understanding and forgiving of, of people who were uh, disfigured, I guess. Mm -hmm. And as women were very judged on our bodies, I just didn't know <laughs> what to do with all that. I had to wear one of those um, latex body suits for three years. Wow. That was hard. I bet. It didn't really do any good, but, you know, um, that's what, what I had to do. Um, I think the thing about that was that I learned that there are no accidents. It was the beginning of me having to take full responsibility for everything that happened to me in my life. There was no way I could then, after that, say, "Yeah, this this is someone else's fault. This is this is some because of something else." It it was a hundred percent me. Um, so that was a an interesting if rather horrible learning experience. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I was very, very lucky. My parents took care of me um, when I got home. And, uh, you know, because I had switched off, I just thought, okay, now I have to get a job. So, like, six months later, I was working and in London and trying to be who I was, I was supposed to be. Mm. I was working as a publicity person at the Battersea Arts Centre in London at that time. And um, I, I was just living like a zombie, practically, you know. I don't really know how else to describe it. You know, on the surface, everything looked okay, seemed okay, but not inside. Mm -hmm. And is that what you're referring to when you said that it, it changed the course of your life? It was that what how you felt afterwards has has led you down a particular path? Um, OK, let me just think about that. OK, maybe it didn't change the course of my life. Maybe that was what my life was supposed to be, you know, from there. But. It, it certainly, there were certain things that I possibly didn't do that I could have done if it hadn't happened. Okay. Quite a few things, I think. I mean, as I said, it was a different world, you know, um, and, and I kind of started to, well, no, I, I was always quite withdrawn um, even before that. But I started to get even more withdrawn, I think. Right. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because I know that's obviously it's a long time ago, but still a very, very challenging and difficult period in your life. Yeah, I, I do. I do feel for people, you know, who have undergone this sort of thing because... To be honest, I think it's really hard for women. I think it's a lot easier for men because women, I don't know if people <laughs> will will hate me for saying this, but I think women are a lot nicer about these things, you know? I, I, I think um, if it happens to women, there's so much conditioned stuff that goes on in your mind. Hmm. About how you look? Yeah, of course, we're judged by our bodies, we're mm -hmm. judged on our bodies, we're judged amongst other things. And I'm sure men are too, but not to the extent I think that women are. No, no. Is that something you think that stayed with you, that um, how you felt at that time and the judgment that you felt? Mm, I think it was a culmination of being judged for a long time. Uh, we we came to England when I was nine, and I was judged as being overweight. I was like about five pounds overweight at that time. So I was immediately put on a series of diets. And um, 
then I got glasses when I was 10 and I had spots, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so the judgment thing of being less than perfect was there for a long mm. time. That was like the culmination. It was like, yes, I mean, <laughs> how much more could happen? I mean, obviously a lot more could have happened and I am unbelievably lucky. And I know that for a fact. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think one of the strands in my life was that, you know, having to understand and accept myself for not being perfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's actually quite a universal issue, really, for many, you know. Indeed. It Indeed. is a I mean, a lot of people grow up thinking you have to be perfect in order to be loved and mm -hmm. and maybe that's not true but that's how it appears to to one and that's that's what one kind of like one goes down that path and that's something that you have to um release at some point that belief yeah where do you think that belief has come from came from well it comes from childhood, people you grow up with, society. I mean, conditioned conditioned beliefs aren't just like from one, one specific place, are they? No. I mean, we can, and that's why I don't blame anyone for anything, because everybody is conditioned by their society. And, and very few people are able to step out of that conditioning. Or even want to. Let's come back to that thought around um, later about that thought around uh, being perfect. You have to be perfect to be loved. I'd be interested to know your current perspective on that. But let's come back to that when we talk about maybe more about where you are currently. Sure. Can we move now, if that's all right, to another challenging time in your life, which um, you then kind of led you into a lot of self-development work and I just wondered if you could share a little bit about that. Yes, the Kundalini awakening. Okay, so that's what happened to me. As I as I told you before, I'm not going to go into it or explain, mm -hmm. but I actually thought I was going mad and so did everybody else. Uh, you know, um, my whole family thought I was mad. Uh, I... My father then put his foot down and said, look, no, she's not mad, leave her alone. But because I thought I was mad, I went to see a lot of mental health professionals and I wanted to know, you know, am I mad or aren't I? And uh, they came to the conclusion that I wasn't mad because I had no desire to hurt anybody. I had no desire to hurt myself and I was holding down a job as a telephone market researcher. So... According to their benchmarks, I wasn't mad. Um, they did offer me some medication and I decided not to take it because I thought, well, if I'm not mad, then something happened and I want to know what it was. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend my life being some numb vegetable, you know. So that's when I started on a very intense kind of period of my life where I was doing a lot of yoga, doing a lot of meditation. And I should say that this Kundalini awakening, when it happened, I was doing extreme amounts of yoga. I was doing um, the cabbage soup diet, which is basically like fasting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was doing going to the gym. I was spending a lot of time alone meditating and doing pranayama. And at the time, because of... Um, the fact that I come from a very scientific type of background, a family background, um, I didn't know what any of that was supposed to lead to. Now I do know that that's one of the ways of arousing your kundalini. I didn't know mm -hmm. that at the time. <laughs> Just, um, but um, when that happened and I established that I was sane, and I realized I wanted to find out what had happened to me. 
I started doing a lot of self-development work, as well as the meditation and the yoga, which I continued quite intensely. I cleaned all my chakras um, through meditation. I did so many self-development courses, right from going through the Course in Miracles, uh, which you must have heard of, I guess. Have you? No, I haven't. Okay, it's a forgiveness course. It's a course, it's mm-hmm. a course in miracles. It, it's last for a year. I put myself through that. Um, I did lots of work around anger issues, um, everything I could think of, you know, behavioral, cognitive therapy, everything. And um, I've, I've continued to do that. And the shadow work, of course, which I told you. Mm-hmm which mm-hmm. is very, very difficult because there's a there's a kind of cliche if you if you spot it you got it and it's true it, it if it's what shows up in your reality it's because it's in your mind subconscious mind or somewhere in you and um whether you want to admit it or not yes i always think of it as the things that annoy us most in other people are because they're there in us and we're, we're denying it in ourselves, so we see it in other people instead. Yeah. Exactly. And, and what also happens is if you hate something about yourself, you'll project it onto someone who is a convenient hook for that. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens a lot. So, yes, um, you're absolutely right. So I was doing all that. And... Um, when that happened in when the f- first when it happened first in 1997 i really my life fell apart and um i had nowhere to go i i um my father said come back home and live here until you've sorted yourself out and um that's something else i'll always be grateful to him for mm-hmm. uh he died a year later of an mm. unexpected heart attack. That's right. Well, I'm very grateful I had that year with him, but, you know. Um, and um, at that time, I was also writing my fourth book, uh, uh, my fourth <laughs> book, <laughs> The Virgin Goddess. And um, I was trying to do all the research for it, you know, here. But then my mother said, well, look, if you really um, are serious about it, you should go to Nepal because there's no way that anyone here really knows that much about the actual story, Um, the actual, not story, but the actual history, the actual culture. It's it's an anthropological thing where people really didn't know much about the Kumari and how she got selected and all that stuff. So I said, okay. And um, yeah, my eldest brother very sweetly gave me air miles for the ticket. I went on a shoestring as usual. I spent three months in Nepal and I I learned, um, yeah, it was another guided synchronistic thing. You know, the people I met, they were so sweet and they're so helpful and they all helped me to do everything. And I think partly because a lot of the anthropologists who had tried to find out about this subject were all white men, and they're very intelligent and very um, aware, but it's it's a female issue. Mm. So people wouldn't tell them the stuff that they would tell me, um, being a brown Indian woman who spoke Hindi. You see, because I, I had more of an... Uh, an edge I think in that way yeah I learned a lot I wrote the book I did I put the time and effort into trying to get it right and get it published but it didn't get published till 2006 and at that point it was a small publisher who published it and he didn't edit it and I was shocked because I had not edited it either. I had written it to the best of my ability, but I assumed that someone else would proofread it. So then I fought him. He took my copyright, so 
So then I fought and, and got my copyright back and edited it properly and republished it. Um, so in 2012, I was very happy with what was out there. And tell me um, about writing. You said to me you, you were three, maybe, when you first knew you wanted to write. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I was, if I, I mean, I don't know if I knew when I was three, but for ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a writer. My mother used to say I used to write stuff when I was three, probably little things, or maybe she meant I made up stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, I just, rem I just know that that's that was my first love. It was my passion. I always felt it was my vocation to be a writer. And so that's what I wanted to do. And as I as I said to you, I mean, I ended up um, writing three novels before The Virgin Goddess, which were so bad, I just thought, no, they have, they, they're, they're, they're horrible, I can't do anything with them. So I threw them away and, you know, worked on The Virgin Goddess. And subsequently, I mean, I've written two more on, and on entirely different themes. Mm -hmm. But yes, it was in, uh, I was working as a copywriter. And uh, in 1990, I got made redundant. I had time to spend on writing. So that's what I did. And I very deliberately made a conscious decision to uh work for myself, do McJobs for money. Um, do they still say McJobs? What do you mean by that? You mean just a job that will pay you so that you can yeah. focus? Focus on writing where I didn't have to use my brain so much. That kind of job. Um, so like I worked doing anything really productive factory production lines and and um handing out leaflets uh obviously a lot of fast food restaurants you know things like that i'm not i'm not trying to denigrate those people you do a very good job but in my case it just meant i went in clocked off never thought about work and just did what i wanted to do so that's what i mean by that what is it about writing that that makes it such a passion and such a love for you? It was the fact that I couldn't communicate in very clearly and I wanted to be able to do that and um, when we went to Australia when I was a kid I was coming up to well, I was five years old. So you were born in India and then went to Australia when you were yeah, my father was a geophysicist and he got uh, work in Australia. He took the whole family with him. Um, and uh, at, at that point, I realised that people didn't understand what I was trying to say to them. And, and the thing is, I knew how to speak English. Our family spoke English, Hindi, Punjabi and Urdu. So I, I could speak English, but I couldn't make myself understood and I just thought okay I want to do that I want to learn how to communicate clearly and I think that my life path for doing that was to become a writer and learning how words work so I'm not good at words I was I was always I used to love painting and drawing and stuff but I was not good at words so that's why the writing and it took me a long time actually um, to to gain that level of clarity in my writing and to to gain it in my in in the way I speak and I'm still not all that great at it when I'm speaking <laughs> but at least I can do it when I'm writing now. Okay, okay. And I think partly you know the whole thing with the shadow work and the Kundalini. You need to know yourself very well in order to communicate clearly, I think, because a lot of the stuff that obscures our ability to communicate with others is the fact that we are not able to show or see the things that 
hinder our communication with others. Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> there the are things in ourselves which block our communication with others. Yes. Sometimes we accept them and sometimes we don't. I think a lot of my life path with the shadow work, the, the meditation, the, the, the focus on the writing, the clarity, mental clarity, is that those things in me which prevented me from being clear with others, I had to work on in myself and get rid of them. See, because it's like Shakespeare said, if if you're true to yourself, you can't be false to anybody. I'm paraphrasing it, obviously. And that's the that's the key thing, isn't it? Being true to yourself, um, being very, very clear about who you are, means that people cannot really um, misunderstand you. If they then choose to misunderstand you, it's a deliberate attack on their part. And that's another thing to understand as well. Agreed. I really agree with you. I think the, the clearer we are about who we really are, not who we think we should be, um, but who we really are, when you speak from that place, then it's a very different kind of speaking and it's very clear to people. Yeah. And I, but I also think it's important to be kind. And that's to do with yoga. There's ahimsa, which is nonviolence. Mm -hmm. It means being nonviolent to other people in thought, word, and speech, and nonviolent to yourself. So, I mean, you know, you have to balance clarity and authenticity with kindness to the other person. I mean, there's no point in hurting people unnecessarily, I feel. No, that's what I think um, is so interesting about authenticity is that it's not a singular, singular thing. People talk about being authentic, I think, from a very narrow perspective of what authentic really means. And authenticity to me is because we're so complex. We could be being authentic to one part of ourselves that is actually something that another part of ourself would not like because we are not one dimensional and we we don't even agree within ourselves all the different parts of us don't necessarily agree um so i think that the use of authenticity particularly when it comes to leadership is is very simplistic it's actually something that i'm really reflecting on a lot at the moment and um, I've started to write about because I just think it's far more complicated um, than than we than we want it to be. I think it is. I agree with you one hundred percent, and that's where the shadow work comes in because yes. the whole point about that is integrating those parts yes. of yourself into yourself, bringing them into the light, isn't it? Um, so once you are, are comfortable and I don't want to sound cheesy, but I have to say, once you love those parts of yourself that you may be hated or despised or afraid of or contemptuous of, once you accept them, it's a lot easier to um, be clear. You know, it really is. And also that it's a lot easier to communicate mm -hmm. kindly and effectively with other people because you don't judge anybody anymore. That's the point. I mean, that's all in you anyway, so... You know, why judge somebody else for something that you <laughs> yeah. probably ended up doing? I agree. I agree. I love that. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I'm keen to move us on. We've got so much more to talk about, um, if that's all right with you. Um, I'd like to talk about um, you and I were talking earlier about that you've got this kind of every 10 to 12 years, these big shifts and things happening Um in your life so um we're talking about what uh about 10 years or so after uh the previous uh time we talked about you were in india you were traveling in india and this is really where maybe some of the seeds started being sown for the foundation that you now run and i just wondered if you could talk a bit about that time and those travels that you were doing 
Sure. Um, so I used to travel a lot, um, as much as I could whenever I had money. Um, and often I used to go to India and travel there. So in 2006, I decided to spend three months traveling in South India because I hadn't really seen it much before. Um, I had seen Kerala, but not other parts of it. And the story I want to tell you is, is about how I really thought about helping street children in India. And what happened was that I was actually in Pondicherry at the time. And everywhere I traveled, I, I used to see lots of kids on the streets and I used to always uh, give them money or food or buy them lunch or dinner or whatever. Um, so um, in Pondicherry one night, I was on my way to have dinner and this little kid, this little boy asked me, uh, for money. So I said, okay, look, um, I'll buy you dinner. Okay. Cause you know, people used to say, don't give these kids money because you know, they'll just give it to the gang leaders and blah, blah, blah. So I, I'm a can I don't really believe that anymore. Cause I've also seen gang leaders being really horrible to kids who don't bring money home. But anyway, going back to the story. So, um, I took him to a restaurant and I saw that he had, uh, someone had cut off his thumb. Uh, they they do that to children to, to make them uh, more pitiful, I guess. that's the, That must be the word, so that people will give them money. So then, um, yes, I mean, you know, I... I, I, I bought him dinner. I, I was on my way to send an email. In those days, uh, the way I did it was finding an internet cafe and sending emails. Um, and uh, after dinner, I said bye and walked on. And I, I actually thought, okay, he's probably got somewhere to go and he'll go home and sleep. So I, I went to the internet cafe. I came back and I saw that he had gone to sleep on the pavement near where I'd first met him. And I was looking down at him thinking, no, 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 he's sleeping on the street. And as I did that, I thought, well, I, well I, what can I do? I can't, uh, I had no money at that time. I had nowhere to live. I was traveling on a shoestring. I couldn't adopt him. I didn't have that uh, financial ability. Um, I uh, I was looking at him thinking, even if I put money in his pocket, you know, this, this place where I was was actually one of those really horrible places. I thought, if I did that, someone will kill him for the money in his pocket if I put it in his pocket. I don't know what to do for him. And I felt horrible. I mean, looking back, I thought, okay, maybe I could have adopted him. Maybe I didn't need a whole lot of money. Maybe it would have all worked out. But that time I believed that I couldn't do anything for him. So I left him there and it broke my heart. And I thought, he was only a little kid, you know, Melody. He was, what, four or five or six or something, really tiny. And, um, and I continued with my travels and I just... You know, as I travelled, I met more and more of these street kids. That some had been born on the streets, some had parents who had come to cities to look for work, and they had no work, so they were living on the streets. Um, and people were really horrible to them, um, and yet they were so intelligent and so, I mean, so, so <laughs> they were kids. You know, they were intelligent. I would say nice kids, basically. Obviously. They were street smart, they had to be. Um, but some of them were so bright. I, I met one 14-year-old lad who had set up his own tour business. You know, and some were really entrepreneurial. You know, he, he realized that tourists needed taxis. He set up his networks, people helped him, and he'd done that. And um, so I invested in that as much as I could at the time, which wasn't much. But, you know, 
that stayed with me for a long time and I thought I want to do something for these children on the streets because I don't think any any child deserves to live like that you know I think I, I think children deserve nice places to live which are safe they deserve education which gives them a choice of what to do with their lives you know I they deserve clean clothes and and nourishing food I mean that that was how I felt and still feel nothing I didn't do anything with that because for a long time I just didn't have money mm -hmm. and I I still don't all I have is what I own I haven't got savings or a home or anything like that but as you will find out later it kind of all came together in at a certain point that's that's the seed of why I I wanted to do what I'm doing so as you said we'll come to what you're doing now in a little while but I wondered if we could jump to 2019 which I guess was another seed maybe another step on the the journey towards the the foundation so you were in Delhi is that right in 2019 yes I got stuck there during Covid uh, for two years but yes in 2019 I I actually went to India first in 2012 um I just wanted to leave England at that time. I was I was quite sick of the racism and Brexit had made it even worse. And I just thought, forget it, I'm going. So I traveled around, I went to India, I ran out of money, I went to Delhi to look for work. And then in 2014, my mother had to have a heart bypass. She was at living on her own in England at the time, so I came back to be with her. So I was here for three years. In 2017, February, I went back to India when, you know, I had uh, got enough uh, resources together and my mother was okay and my sister had come back here to England so she wouldn't be alone. Um, so I was kind of free to go. Uh, and I, I ended up travelling in 2017 for a while, uh, to Bali and Thailand and in India as well. Then I came back to Delhi because I'd run out of money and I needed work, so I was living <laughs> there. So yes, I was there in 2019. And what happened was that a lot of people who worked as maids and drivers and cooks in restaurants asked me if they, I would teach them English. And I, even though I actually have got a certificate to teach adults in further education is called a petal certificate. I never wanted to be a teacher. Um, but I thought about it. I thought this is a good way of actually earning money. Maybe I could give tuition. However, I found out a few things, which was one is these people had no actual time. They were they they had to work for 12 or 14 hours a day. They had very little money. They, they get paid a pittance and they don't have spare money to pay for tuition. And um, though they want to learn English, the, the time and money thing was a big issue, right? And why do they want to learn English? Why is it important to them? Okay, so India has two national languages, um, English and Hindi. and if one can speak English in India, they get you get a better job. So the so the drivers would get um, jobs where they could perhaps drive foreigners who speak English. Uh, the maids could work in um, higher income households and get more money. Uh, they could then um, educate their children. Uh, you know, so and even other people who who um, are working in other types of jobs, if they can speak English well, they um they get better get they get better jobs. That's why. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it helps them to increase uh, the quality of their life, to improve the quality of their life. 
So that's fine. So, um, yes, so those two issues were a big, um, big thing. However, they all had smartphones. It's, it's the culture. Everybody has smartphones and access to the internet. And I was thinking to myself, how can I do this so it's good for me and good for them? And I thought, well, okay, I'll write a grammar book. Because I was looking around thinking, when I was thinking about giving tuition there, I was looking at the grammar books thinking, these are so archaic, it's, it's actually ludicrous. I mean, even some of the best ones, they're, they're teaching the type of English that was spoken 100 years ago in England, not the stuff that's spoken now. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll write a grammar book and then I'll do a, a course on YouTube which people can access for free in their own time and just learn by themselves. And obviously, if it takes off, then the YouTube channel will get, make me money. And if people buy the book, that will make me money. And the people who keep asking me to teach them English will get a free way of learning English because mm -hmm. they don't have to buy the book to learn from the YouTube course, you see. So it's free. So, so I did all that. And... It didn't really work, Melody. And the reason is, is that when I first wanted to do the course, I wanted to do it with someone who could speak very fluent Hindi and who was from uh, the same type of society as the people who wanted me to teach them so that they could see that it worked and it was it would be good for them. But then, of course, COVID happened. So I was on my own. So I, couldn't, I had to just do it on my own. I couldn't actually... Um, you know, I, I, I had had to self-isolate and all that stuff, and like everybody else did. And um, so, so anyway, all that's there online. But it's still, so it's still there, it's still on YouTube. We'll uh, put a link in the, the notes from the episode. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. And with the grammar book, um, that's still there. Uh, anyway, after COVID, I... Um, thought, okay, I've had enough. I've been on my own for two years. I would like to go and spend some time with my mother. So I thought I'd go to England. And I was on my way to England. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, I'll, you know, my birthday's coming up. I'll treat myself to a holiday in Kajra, which is a place I'd always wanted to see. Um, very beautiful, by the way. And um, so I went there. And that's where the next thing happened. So why don't you tell us about that? Because you met you met someone there, didn't you, who has been quite instrumental. So tell tell us tell us about how you almost didn't meet them. So you know the sort of slightly circular route to meeting this person. I thought was interesting. Well, I call it synchronicity. Yes. Um, so what happened was that because it was my birthday, I thought I'll stay some in a nice hotel and you know all that stuff and so I booked into this place and then I saw another hotel advertised which was cheaper and that was an issue for me at the time so I thought but it looked very nice as well so I thought okay I'll go and stay there just completely like that you know spur of the moment and um, I changed the booking uh, and I got to Kajral and I went to the hotel, and the, one of the first people I met in that hotel was Manoj, who works there. Well, he, he used to work there. He doesn't now, he, you know, but he, he used to work there. And um, that's that's how it happened. I mean, I do remember, you know, again, that sounds a bit out there, but I do remember looking at him thinking, you look very familiar, even though I've never met you before. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's uh, a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I don't know, people say it's a lot of things, you know, like um, soul friends or whatever. And um, it, it, I mean, I do, I do feel that too. I do believe in that. So, anyway, we started, uh, you know, establishing a kind of relationship and talking. And one day I was talking to him and I, I said, look, if you had lots of money, like, because money was a huge issue for him as well. I'll explain later about all that. But um, 
what would you do with it? And he said, well, I'd like to help the, uh, the, poor, the poor children in, in my village. And I thought, oh, my God. Because that's when it hit me that one way of helping street children was by tackling the issue at the root. And one of the roots, um, as I mentioned previously, was that when there's no employment for families and villages, they go to cities and they take their children with them. They take the whole family. And when they don't get employment, they end up living on the streets um, and their kids basically, they don't get education, they don't get proper food, they don't get proper clothing. Um, because their parents are unemployed, they're living on the streets. It's it's a horrible life for everybody. Um, and I thought, well, if we can set up projects which help people to um, make money for themselves in villages, they probably wouldn't go to the cities. So um, one way of doing that is to, to, to set up centres where I mean, originally the idea was to set up centres where we provided skills training for adults and education for poor children and free food for everybody. But what actually happened in practice when when, when we ended up doing this um, is something I'll come to. But anyway, at that point, I thought, well, I look, I'm earning good money as a freelance writer at the moment. I can actually afford to set up uh, a non-profit organization in India and so I did it and uh, subsequently people said how did you do that it's really difficult it's almost impossible but I didn't actually realize it was impossible I just thought okay, <laughs> I just I just have to do it and um, you know obviously what we, one has to uh, push people a bit you know to do things but you know it, it happened we we got the organization and then we could start the project and with the project, uh, Manoj, Manoj's family has a building which he has uh, given to the Live and Learn. It's called the Live and Learn Foundation. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the place is called Piental, where the project is. And it's called the Live and Learn Centre in Piental. So Manoj's family is from there. Manoj is from there. He, the, the project is in a building which belongs to his family. Um, so we got the we got the place, and when we were thinking about doing it, we were able to set up the project so we could provide free food and uh, free coaching tuition for impoverished children. They're called below poverty line children, but as yet we haven't been able to go to the stage of providing the skills training for adults, which will come. It will. Come your course um so in Piental, what's happened is that we've got um two very good teachers and they teach the children computers and it and computer skills hindi literacy and numeracy um general knowledge and of course english um so that they have some kind of foundation to build on uh, for when they go to school, because we see this as working with the government schools, which are also, mm -hmm. but these kids that we're, we're giving the free coaching to, they don't have any um, infrastructure at home. Uh, you know, the, their parents are not educated. Many of them don't even see the point. Um, so they don't, when they go to the government schools, they're, they're, they're left behind in a way. So what we're trying to do is, is give them the base on which to build their education in the school. Yes. How old are the children then? What kind of ages are you working with? Some of them are so tiny, but the parents kind of leave them there because it's a safe place. <laughs> when they go to work, so like, it goes from like, I think they look about three to me, some of them, to about 18. So it's mm -hmm. a cute whole range. So they get taught according to their age and ability. But we do, we are looking for more money because the tiny ones do need someone to look after them. Uh, uh, I mean, at the moment they're okay, you know, they're safe and everything and they get fed and everything, but um, there's a lot to be done still.
So tell me about the the financial side of things. How are you funding the foundation? Well, at the moment, half of what I earn goes to the foundation. Mm -hmm. That pays the teacher salaries, uh, something for Manoj. Um, I I don't get anything, obviously, yet. Mm -hmm. I hope for in the future, obviously, but not not right now. So half of what I earn goes there. Um, Last year, we were very, very lucky. We got um, donations from a government source uh, and um, also an individual, which helped immensely. So um, we've got four computers now. We'd like five. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the moment, it would be great to get more donations. That's kind of a process at the moment because... In India, it's quite difficult for non-profit organisations to to ask for donations in the beginning. Um, So what happens is that we have to get some certificates called 12A and ATC, and that means Indian citizens can give donations freely, and the government will too. But we can't accept foreign donations Um, because um, for that we need a separate certificate and that only comes after three years. Mm -hmm. We show that we've been doing what we say we're doing. Mm -hmm. So so it's it's a long process. Mm. So if people who are listening to this wanted to contribute in some way, assuming they're not in India, so they would be classed as foreign donation, are there things they can do? Yes, there's two things. One is to buy the Live and Learn Grammar Textbook because mm-hmm. 25% of all the royalties I'll get from that go to go to the foundation. And that, um, again, we'll put a link to that so that people can uh, go and buy that if they want. I mean, at the moment, all the royalties go to it, but hopefully if sales increase, then, then it will be 25%. Um, and the other thing is, is that we can apply for a temporary... Uh, foreign donation certificates. So if somebody does want to give us a lot of money, um, which is by lot I mean say like say five hundred or a thousand pounds or something or more, then um, the government can give us a temporary um, foreign donation certificate uh, if if they if the if the donor writes a letter saying that they they would like to give us that. So they can do it that way. And um, they can get in touch with us through our website. Okay, great. So where's next for you? You've established uh, in one village. What's your dream for the foundation? My dream, my dream is to have a big centre in Delhi, which can be self-sustaining and fund all the other projects throughout India, which I'd like to do loads of, and 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 do those projects specifically for the street children, specifically, okay? And my dream is that the the self-financing project in Delhi um, would be one of those uh, places where um, we would not only have the education and the skills training for the street children and their and, and, and impoverished adults. We'd also have workshops and arts events and lots of interesting things for people to do um, so that lots of people from all walks of life could come there and meet and um, exchange ideas and think of other great things that they could do to make society better. Um, it, that, that, that's really what I would love to do. Uh, one, you see, the, the, the actual fundamental aim uh, for the foundation is that is to create a world without poverty where, where hopefully social equality can become a reality. And I think the, the way to do that is to create safe spaces for people to meet, you know, where there is no fear. People are afraid of, you know, of people from other walks of life. They're afraid of people from different income groups. Um, but if they can go somewhere where everybody is basically considered equal, if they can go and do something where everybody um, has a good time, enjoys doing it, then you know there's there's more of a chance where slowly people can 
learn to trust each other, I think. Uh, and and, uh, and and from that trust, you know, a lot of things can grow, I think. So that's that's a dream. That's lovely. And what about your writing? What's next with that? You're still continuing to write? Of course, I haven't had time for two years, but um, I actually wrote a book about the whole Kundalini awakening and my personal journey and and actually about the chakras as well. It's called The Advanced Guide to the Chakras. So um, I... Uh, I'm hoping to have time this year to finish editing it and to get it out there and publish it. So that's next. And then after that, I don't know. <laughs> I quite like to leave things open. You know, yeah. People always say you must have a plan. But when I was traveling, I ended up writing all these books I wasn't expecting to write because I had no plan. And it was it was amazing actually. Um you know, because I wrote two novels as well during that time. <laughs> it was like so sometimes not having a plan and, and letting letting things happen can be mm. can be um very fulfilling, I think. Letting things emerge. Yeah, yeah. And what about uh I've been asking this of all of my guests, some advice for your younger self. Do you have any advice for any younger uh, version of yourself? Well, this is something I told you um, before, but yes, actually, I'm going to tell you that story because it's it's something I'll always remember. It happened when I was 10. And, you know, I had this whole issue with not being perfect and being overweight and spotty, I wore glasses and my I was brown and a very, very all-white world I was at boarding school at the time and um uh you know it was a very different England it was it was actually quite in England where you know racism was kind of accepted you know thankfully it's not now and and I love that but you know I, I was basically made to feel inadequate on the grounds of my appearance and it was very hurtful. I was 10. <laughs> it, was like, uh, it was really hurtful. And, and that had started happening, you know, obviously when we went to Australia, it was just one of those things. But I just remember looking at myself in the mirror one day at school at 10 years old. And it was like it wasn't me looking at me. It was like somebody else looking at me. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God. You're beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you any different. And and I, I've always remembered that. Of course, I didn't believe myself. I mean, I didn't believe myself for years, and I still have an issue with it right now. <laughs> but I just remember that, and I think, oh, my God, I told myself that when I was 10. And um, so that I've, I, I guess I already gave myself that advice. Lovely. I love that. Thank you. I suppose if I had any advice that I'd give now, I would say trust yourself. Just trust yourself. And I'm going to go back. Actually, you said earlier that when you were younger, you believed that you had to be perfect to be loved. And I just wonder what you think of that now, looking at it from a, you know, a different space and time in your life. Different space and time. I love that. Well, in this space and time, I guess, what I feel is, is that you're always perfect to somebody who truly loves you. And that's one way of telling whether they love you or not. I mean, I find that if I love someone, I don't want them to be any different. I want them to be who they are. Yeah. So that's... All I have to say about that. I think that's beautiful. I really love that. Thank you. And my final question for you is if you were to think of a title or a strapline for your story, what would it be? Oh, I thought of that. It says, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> love that. 
I think that's fantastic. I think that really sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your story is so interesting and, you know, really has taken some interesting twists and turns along the way. And what you're doing with the Live and Learn Foundation is fantastic. So thank you for sharing um, and taking the time to, to share your life and your story with us. Thank you, Melody. I had a really nice time and I'm very grateful to you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome. This felt like a very different kind of interview to many of my other podcast episodes and we did discuss some very difficult and challenging topics and times in Anjali's life. I was really struck by our conversation around how women are being judged on how they look. I really enjoyed the conversation we had around uh, being true to yourself, being clear about who you are and the impact that that has on the way that you interact with others. I really loved her passion for uh, working with below poverty line children and the impact that her foundation can have on, on the very difficult lives of children and their families in India. And that she has a real passion for making society better um, and a dream where social equality can really become a reality. I think Anjali is a very understated but very impressive woman. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Secret Resume. If you did, remember to like, share, comment and subscribe as that helps people like you find people like us.